2: House Republicans today questioning President Biden's brother. The lead starts right now. The impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden appears to be possibly on somewhat shaky ground after the Justice Department alleged that the former FBI informant who appeared to have so much dirt on President Biden was actually peddling lies and getting his dirt from Russian intelligence. CNN has the talking report points that Republicans are now using after years trying to sell this informant as a trusted source. Plus, the woman with the dual U.S.-Russian citizenship detained in Russia, why she was in Russia, her ties to a California spa, and the alleged $51 donation that may have led to her arrest. And 21 years after the murder of Jam Master Jay, a jury We'll finally examine that ambush that killed a member of the pioneer hip-hop group Run-DMC. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our Law and Justice lead and the major fallout after this former FBI informant at the center of Republican efforts to impeach President Biden was indicted for lying to the FBI about the Biden family's dealings in Ukraine and then told the FBI that he got the false dirt from officials with Russian intelligence. That's according to court documents where prosecutors are saying Alexander Smirnov, this informant, was quote, actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections. Today, despite a judge releasing him yesterday, prosecutors have been fighting to put Smirnov back behind bars while he awaits trial. That's him leaving court yesterday, you can see on the screen. Prosecutors are suggesting that Smirnov's Russian connections and access to cash make him a serious flight risk. While a court court irons out those details, Democrats on Capitol Hill are, are calling on Republicans to end the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland called it a, quote, wild goose chase built on conspiracy theories and lies, but... House Republicans say they will not back down, instead they say they are downplaying the influence that Smirnoff has had on their impeachment inquiry, and Republicans are going after the Justice Department and the FBI for having trusted Smirnoff and used him as an informant in the first place.
3: You know, I think it's interesting that the FBI didn't investigate the allegations made years ago, and now they've indicted the confidential source that they trusted for years, and made, uh, paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, there's a lot of questions I have regarding that.
2: House Republicans are also moving full steam ahead with the impeachment process, they say. Today, they interviewed President Biden's brother, James, behind closed doors. James is the first member of the Biden family to testify in this investigation. And today, that businessman reiterated to lawmakers that the president, in his words, quote, has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in his 50-year career. CNN's Manu Raju starts off our coverage of this all from Capitol Hill. Manu caught up with and asked a number of top Republicans about all of these new developments.
4: Mr. Mr. Jordan. Republicans defiant in the face of a damning indictment, charging an FBI informant of making up a bribery scheme involving President Biden and his son, Hunter. Allegations central to their impeachment probe into Biden and his family's business dealings. But your promotion of a bribery scheme was false.
0: Not at all. We're we're looking at the four facts I just gave
4: you. Those facts are true. Was it right to promote a bribery scheme for the president based on that?
5: Today, we're asking questions to James Biden. So we're gonna ask him about some of his business relationships with the Chinese.
4: Was your brother involved in any of your business dealings? Behind closed doors today, the president's brother, James Biden, told House investigators that the president never had any involvement in his business activities all as the GOP is at risk of seeing support for the impeachment effort collapse in the House, since they have yet to prove that Biden acted corruptly to assist his family. I think it's time for uh, Chairman Comer and the Republicans to fold up the circus tent. Mr. Smirnoff, do you have anything to say? After 43-year-old Alexander Smirnoff was arrested on charges of lying to the FBI and creating false records, he told the FBI that officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in the false Biden bribery allegations. And today, Special Counsel David Weiss asked a judge to keep Smirnoff in jail as he awaits trial. Yet it was Smirnov's allegations that Republicans ran with, citing an FBI form known as a 1023 that contained the unverified accusations. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. A key GOP chairman helping lead the probe, even calling it a smoking gun.
1: We already know the president took bribes from Burisma.
6: Those allegations are consistent with a pattern that we've seen in Romania and maybe some other countries.
4: And Chairman Jim Jordan indicating the informant's allegations were essential. The most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible, confidential human source. Today, Jordan downplayed that recent remark. You said the 1023
0: is the most corroborating piece of information it corroborates, you have. but It doesn't. it doesn't change those fundamental facts, so now. And it's not true.
4: Republicans today criticizing the FBI and DOJ for previously calling Smirnov credible and paying him for information as a circulated talking point saying the Biden probe has secured more evidence and was not reliant on Smirnov's testimony, even as they removed a reference to the informant in a letter sent to a witness. But what evidence do you have of a bribery scheme now?
7: Right, We've got lots of evidence.
4: Now, as Republicans distance themselves from that indicted FBI informant, Jim Jordan told me that they have evidence that could prove Joe Biden acted corruptly with regard to his actions with Ukraine, while as vice president, although those have yet to be established. Also James Comer, the House Oversight Chairman's ally, said that their investigation has mostly to do with Biden family financial transactions, not this indicted FBI informant. But Jake, the question is, can they convince enough House Republicans to move forward? with articles of impeachment, that is still a major question as Hunter Biden is scheduled to be come behind closed doors, but right here behind me next week.
2: All right, Manaraj, thanks so much. Let's bring in uh, CNN's Evan Pettis, uh, who covers the Justice Department for us, as well as uh, John Miller up in New York. Um, Evan, uh, did the FBI tell Republicans in Congress at any point that this information from Smirnoff might not be reliable? before it became central to the impeachment inquiry
5: well they warned the uh, the Republicans that this information had not been corroborated that it was it was raw unverified information and this is why they fought for a long time. Uh, to, to not provide this information. Normally these uh, 1023s, these documents that, that memorialize these, uh, these interactions with, with uh, confidential informants, Jake, uh, are not shared outside the FBI, right? And so there's a reason for that, is that because it's not been verified, it's not usable information. Uh, they use it to try to find additional information, but they don't use it, uh, it's not something that you would use in court, for instance, and they certainly wouldn't provide it to Congress, unless they were forced to, and in this case, they were forced to by the Republicans that were making threats. Now- yeah, Chuck
2: Grassley, right? The Senator right, exactly. from Iowa. Here's,
5: here's the wrinkle. For the FBI, they were in a pickle. They were getting threats from, the, from Congressional Republicans, but Chuck Grassley and people in, Cong- in Congress already had a copy of the document. So that's where they were. Uh, now it is true though, that in their briefing, what they were told about Smirnoff is that he had previously provided valuable information and they had found, it, found him credible in those previous instances.
2: Interesting. John Miller, uh, before these charges, Alexander Smirnov did have this extensive history of working with law enforcement and they considered many of the, much of the information he had provided in the past to be credible and reliable. So how did he allegedly get tied up with all this false information that he says was from Russian intelligence.
7: Well it's not exactly clear because he admits to talking to Russian intelligence officials at least according to the charging documents and the FBI uh, people that I know who are familiar with his work do say that he worked on cases where the evidence was proven and people were convicted so you know he was providing information that was reliable for a long period of time so at what point do we see that switch? Now, while they're sorting through this case, I can tell you this, not about this case, but about informants in general. You know, to people in law enforcement, and I controlled probably the largest number of informants in the NYPD and in the Intelligence Bureau, uh, but, you know, I remember my time in the FBI, these people are considered uh, informants, a source of information, somebody to get us from point A to a case, but oftentimes they consider themselves international men of mystery, and they may intimate that they have connections with the government. They work with intelligence agencies. They may say that to other intelligence agencies or to people they're trying to do business deals with. Remember, with Smirnoff, you're talking about a guy that the government says has uh, over six million dollars cash in the bank and a wife or girlfriend who has another four million dollars. So. He wasn't being an informant necessarily for the money, even though he was well paid. Uh, It seems that this was, uh, like many informants, part of his um, tool set as he traveled around the world making business deals, getting in corrupt deals, being able to get out of them, playing both ends off the middle. Mm -hmm. This is the key question, Jake. Did the Russians supply him information knowing that it would get to the FBI and do damage to... Um, the politics that they wanted to do damage to was that witting or unwitting or was he just making it all up and that's um, the impasse that they're at right now
2: and they prosecutors uh... Smirnov in jail right. um... while he awaits trial they say he's a flight risk and obviously has ties to other countries but a judge uh... released him yesterday why
5: well he, the, the judge said that the, po- the political ramifications of this case were not really relevant To his detention, and he sort of dismissed the concern that you know this essentially this guy has become part of an operation uh, that is that is intended to influence uh, the 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 2024 election. But you know what 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 John Miller was just talking about, I think, you know, plays into the complication for the FBI and for the Justice Department in this case because uh, you know this guy is at one point. they know that he has antipathy towards Joe Biden. They know that uh, he's associating with foreign intelligence services. They know he's talking to the Israelis and to the Russians. They know all of that. All of that is acceptable for the FBI. The problem is, you know, at one point, you know, does he start lying? And it, it, at what point does the FBI do something about it? Jake, that's the biggest question at this point. Is, uh, you know, for at least three or four years, you know, this information lived inside the Justice Department. Two U.S. attorneys, David Weiss and Scott Brady, were aware of this, and the question is, why didn't someone just start to at least pull some of the threads to unravel what obviously now are lies?
2: Although I would imagine prosecuting every single informant who tells a false story, even knowingly so, would keep the FBI way beyond their capacity to do Not business. all
5: informants are, are informing on the sitting president of the United yeah, States. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, Evan Pautas and uh, John Miller, thanks to both you. Joining us now to discuss further, Joshua School, the former FBI executive director, uh, Ex- executive assistant director for intelligence. Joshua, thanks for joining. So the FBI's informant program reported to you when you were at the FBI. Uh, wh- what do you make of how the Bureau handled this particular case and incident? Well, first of all, I'm,
3: I'm- proud of the fact that they charged the informant for lying. What we don't know is when they found out he was lying and how they used those lies to the benefit of the U- U.S. intelligence community. Often, um, the U.S. intelligence community, including the FBI, will turn an informant back against those handlers, providing additional false information. It's a false flag operation. So we don't know that. That's not going to come out in the ch- uh, in the charging document. Or if he continued to perpetuate lies to the FBI, maybe another reason they decided to charge him now.
2: But as I understand it, Alexander Smirnov is saying he got this information from Russian intelligence. I mean, is it not possible that he was not lying? That he was told this and he passed it on to the FBI and he thought it was real?
3: Well Jake, I think that there's a high threshold for charging a lying case. Lies are sometimes hard to prove for what you're pointing out. however, the fact that they've gone forward and charged him formally leads me to believe that they had evidence that he perpetuated lies, tried to send investigators and the prosecutors down a rabbit hole, and that he got what he deserved in the in this uh, recent charging in the in u s court how does one even
2: figure out when an informant has been compromised, when an informant is meeting with individuals who have ulterior motives. It seems like the entire world of informants is murky and full of individuals with many competing agendas.
3: That is absolutely true. Choir boys do not make the best informants. You're looking for people that can report on illicit activity that have placement and access, and then you have to corroborate it. And then you constantly have to test those informants and make sure that their motives for why they're coming to you, or at least you know why they're coming to you, corroborate the information they're providing. In an investigation, one source of information is never used to bring forth a charge or to do any other uh, invasive collection, such as a wiretap or something like that. Informants are used in a court of law, but as a source of information that has been corroborated. And it's a constant test.
2: Joshua School, always good to have you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Saturday will mark two full years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In recent days, CNN's Christiana Amanpour has been in the room with leaders of key NATO allies. What she's hearing and what she's not hearing about the urgency of supporting Ukraine at this stage in its war. That's next. Back with our world lead as Ukraine enters its third year of Russia's full-scale illegal invasion of its country, American political debates are having a major impact on the battlefield, punctuated by Russia's capture of the key eastern Ukrainian town of Avdivka this weekend. A costly loss at the White House is blaming directly on House Republicans' repeated failure to approve $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine. As former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney put it to me on Sunday, she blames the, quote, Putin wing of the Republican Party. Today, the White House sent a, quote, vacation reading package memo to House Republicans saying the least they could do on their two week break is, quote, read about the harm they are causing. CNN's chief international anchor, Christiana Manpour, speaks with soldiers in Ukraine outgunned and outmanned in the story we're about to show you. But even those with severe battle wounds tell her they want to go back to the front lines and fight for their country.
8: Snow falls softly on new recruits for the Ukrainian Army 3rd Assault Brigade. Drill sergeants push them through their paces with urgent basic training for the trenches, urban warfare and assault maneuvers. Every woman and man counts now for a battle that seems to have returned to the dire days at the start. 28-year-old Serhi came back from Lithuania to serve two weeks ago despite his health. What's wrong with
3: you? uh, It's asthma. But right now uh, we need to take our best man and no matter what I I will serve my
8: country until the victory. The brigade says it's training professional fighters, not cannon fodder like Russia. Their soldiers helped evacuate survivors of the battle for Avdivka, where Russia has now raised its flag. But many of their wounded were left behind. Just watch this video call between a severely injured soldier, Ivan, and his panic-stricken sister, Katerina. Ivan and his comrades never made it. Ukraine says there was a deal. Russia would evacuate them and exchange prisoners. Instead, Russia released video of them dead. The brigade says they were shot. These are desperate times in Ukraine's fight to survive. They need to replenish the ranks of the dead and injured. And even here, at the Superhumans facility in the western city of Lviv, therapists and prosthetic specialists work around the clock giving these war amputees a second chance and even a return to the front lines. 25 year old Anastasia Savka is an army sniper. She stepped on a landmine in November near the Zaporizhia front. And she tells me they are scattered there like snowdrops in spring, like daisies in summer.
9: We couldn't get out for a
8: long time because we were under very heavy fire, she tells me. To be honest, we were ready to die there. The attacks were so close, and we were thinking this was the end. Olga Rudneva is CEO of this center, which is supported by a Ukrainian businessman and the American philanthropist Howard Buffett. 80% of the patients are military, many of them multiple amputees. And that's because, Olga says, the wounded cannot get out of the battle zone during the so-called golden hour to save their limbs.
1: People are evacuated for 10 hours by comrades very often because Russians are shelling our medics. So by the time they arrive at stabilization point, we have to cut them high because of the tourniquets. So that's why we have multiple uh, amputations.
8: Not only are they outmanned, they are also outgunned. The gridlock in Congress over military aid is showing up at the front. And time is not their friend. We reach Sergeant Mikola, who's also serving now on the Zaporizhia front line. Do you have enough weapons? Do you have enough people? Do you have enough ammunition? Uh, Of course we don't, he says. There is a catastrophic shortage of people, the same with weapons. There aren't enough shells for artillery and tanks, or the tanks and artillery themselves. On a brief hiatus in the rear, they've had to buy their own mortar, small caliber just for self-defense. Problem is, no ammunition. Anastasia practices perfecting her balance, her endurance, regaining the strength to shoulder her weapons, and she wants to go back to the front. I think anything is possible, she says, but whatever happens, we all need to fight this together because the enemy is advancing. No one wants their children to still be fighting the war they and their parents have been fighting ever since Putin's first invasion a decade ago. Something Anastasia said to me is stuck with me in this time of dire weapons and ammunition shortage. She said, we cannot advance on the battlefield with assault rifles. It's essentially in some points come to that, Jake. And these people here, many of them, not just the soldiers, but also civilians. They tell me, look, Ukraine is right there, right in the middle of the democratic world and the autocratic world. And we are fighting the fight. We just need the help and the ammunition and the weapons to do it for for you and for us and for everyone.
2: And Christiane, recently you've been in the room with world leaders at the Munich Security Conference. President Biden says the U.S. is going to stick with Ukraine for as long as it takes. But... Are Western leaders, other Western leaders, quietly admitting that this is likely going to be a very long war and perhaps the strategy needs to shift?
8: Well, look, the Western leaders say, and many American military analysts say, Ukraine can win. But it depends on the political will of Western nations. You know that President Biden has tried to send more aid to support essentially this battle for democracy and that the Republican Congress, the MAGA wing, some of whom were represented in that room, uh, they have torpedoed it. So that is a a huge problem. And as I said, Putin has from the beginning known or at least said and believed that the West didn't have the sticking power, obviously, for a dictatorship, for a one party party one leader system, it's much easier to do what you want to do. But he has been waiting for this moment. And every minute that a weapon or an ammunition or a round doesn't get to the front, he's pushing ahead. Advica, as you know, fell over the weekend. Foreign minister told me that it wouldn't have happened if this bottleneck had not been so jammed up. And uh, now they're pushing forward even further towards the second largest city in Ukraine, Kharkiv, in the northeast, right close to the Russian border.
2: It does seem as though the main headline out of the Munich Security Conference is that there's this real sense of anxiety in Europe uh, fueled by uh, individuals who weren't even there, uh, Trump and Putin.
8: Look, you're absolutely right. I've told you uh, about Putin uh, and how he's just waiting the West out. And by the way, has turned his economy towards a full defence production economy, and it's doing really well. They're pumping out shells, they're pumping out uh, drones, rather, and pumping out armoured vehicles and all the weapons that they that they need. So they are well armed and very well manned with a three to one or four to one advantage over the ukrainians donald trump on the other hand is causing a huge amount amount of anxiety not just because he's constantly you know questioning nato's article five and the basis of nato's existence to one for all and all for one but as you know the last comment the latest comment during a campaign swing was that he said he would invite you know Putin to do whatever he wanted to a NATO country. It doesn't go down well. I'll tell you why, because the Europeans are ramping up their defense spending and they are ramping up their 2% you know, requirement. Uh, I tell you, uh, Donald Tusk, who's the prime minister of Poland, a key uh, U.S. ally, reminded everybody that it was America under Ronald Reagan, a Republican president, who actually came to their defense and helped all of Eastern Europe win their freedom. And I have to say, he, he tweeted to the Republicans in Congress stymieing this. He said, Reagan would be turning in his grave. And shame on you. That's what's happening right now.
2: Christiana Mapor in Kyiv. Thank you so much. Coming up next, new details about one of Russia's latest detainees, a woman with dual U.S. Russian citizenship. What CNN is learning about why she was in Russia and what this, why the State Department is having trouble getting to the bottom of her case. Stay with us.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Wyndham hotels and resorts makes travel possible for all whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers or a place to make summer memories with the whole family no matter who you are where you're going or why with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta days in and super eight your Wyndham is waiting get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. hotels.com restrictions apply visit website for more details. Topping our world
2: lead, 33-year-old dual U.S.-Russian citizen Ksenia Karelina is in Russian detention. She has been arrested, Russian authorities say, for treason. She allegedly donated $51 to a Ukrainian charity. That's according to her Los Angeles employer. It's a charity that Russia's security services, the FSB, say, funded an organization that assists Ukraine's armed forces. The FSB also alleges that she, quote, Took part in public actions, unquote, to support Ukraine. This is while she was living in the U.S. Now, her arrest comes as other Americans, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich, and dual U.S. Russian citizen Alsu Kormarsheva, are also serving time in Russia. Paul and Evan have been designated as wrongfully detained by the U.S. State Department. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Russia's capital. And Matthew, the State Department says that Russia does not recognize dual citizenship. How, how does that affect the U.S.'s ability to gain information about Karelina's case?
10: Um, well, it makes it much more difficult. I mean, because normally if you're a, a U.S. citizen and you come to Russia, it would be on a visa. Uh, and that means that you're still seen as a, a U.S. citizen when you're here. And so if you get arrested, uh, like Ksenia Karelina has been, it means that the automatic uh, situation is that diplomats get consular access to you. But when you come in on your Russian passport, you're regarded as a Russian citizen. Even if you've got uh, a US passport or any other kind of passport, it doesn't matter. You came into Russia on a Russian passport, as Ksenia did, and that means as far as the Russians are concerned, um, you know, they, they regard her as a Russian citizen so that they're treating her as such. I mean, I think the big question though here is, you know, why someone like Ksenia Karelina, this 33-year-old beauty therapist who lives in Los Angeles and, and works there uh, would have been targeted at all. I mean, her, her crimes, which her alleged crimes, which, which you mentioned, you know, she gave 50 bucks or so uh, to a US charity that helps people inside uh, Ukraine. She probably posted some pro-Ukrainian images uh, as well, but she's not exactly a political activist. She's certainly not uh, a politician. And it just points to this idea, Jake, that there is an absolute zero tolerance in Russia these days towards any kind of dissenting opinion. I mean, if you're quiet and you don't full-throatedly support the war, then people are suspicious in the authorities of you. But if you do anything, uh, that they construe as being, you know, kind of supportive of Ukraine or against, you know, the, the the special military operation, as they call it here, you could well leave yourself being vulnerable to being called a traitor. And that's the situation uh, that Ksenia Karelina has apparently found herself in.
2: And Matthew, we're also hearing reports of this pro-Kremlin military blogger, Andrei Morozov, that he was found dead days after reporting on Russian losses in the Ukrainian town of of Divka, uh, which Russia ultimately captured this weekend. What can you tell us uh, about this blogger?
10: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, again, it it points to just how difficult the line is to walk. Not only have you got to be you've got to be supportive of Russia's troops in Ukraine, but not too supportive of them. Uh, This is a, a sort of far you know, kind of nationalist, an ultra-nationalist blogger. He was known on his Telegram channel as Murs, had about 100,000 followers. Uh, He was very upfront with Russian troops in their uh, military operation, as they call it here, uh, the war in Ukraine, inside Ukraine, delivering very hard-hitting, truthful, apparently, reports about the state of weapons and the state of the forces uh, up there. He went a bit too far, though, because he said that... Um, Russian troops had lost 16,000 people in the assault on Avdivka, uh, which he compared with the loss of thousands of troops uh, from from the Ukrainian side. And that was just too much uh, for many of his comrades, uh, many of his commanders, and they forced him to take that post down. And he said in his last post before he committed suicide that he was being bullied. And so that, that was the reason, it seems, that he took his own life.
2: CNN's Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next to CNN Exclusive, tracking one of the last aid trucks to enter Gaza, what we can confirm happened to that truck, and the questions now directly is at, now directed at Israeli forces. Now to the Israel-Hamas war, as negotiators race to try to secure a hostage agreement before Ramadan begins next month. Israeli War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz says he sees initial signs of progress. On Sunday, Gantz put it plainly, he said, quote, Hamas has a choice. They can surrender, release the hostages, and the citizens of Gaza will be able to celebrate the holy holiday of Ramadan, unquote. Israel believes about 100 hostages are still alive, but without progress, On negotiating their release, Israel's military says it will advance on the densely populated southern Gaza city of Rafah, even during Ramadan, where an estimated 1.5 million Palestinians are currently sheltering. CNN's Katie Polglossi has uh, exclusive new reporting that shows an Israeli strike hit a United Nations aid truck, a truck that traveled along a route marked safe by Israel.
9: this is how desperate the people in northern gaza are this aid truck filmed at the end of january is one of the last to enter the region and here's why aid so often caught in the fighting now cnn can exclusively reveal that this truck carrying vital food headed for northern gaza was hit on february 5th by an israeli shell despite an agreement to provide a safe route CNN has seen the internal UN incident report and the correspondence between the UN and the Israeli military that show the route of this convoy was agreed upon in advance. And with starvation imminent for many across Gaza, experts say hitting a food truck is a potential war crime. Looking at it with the available facts, it's really difficult to see how this could be a legal um, attack. And so at minimum, it would look like a very serious violation of international humanitarian law. Whether it's also criminal then depends on questions of intent. The truck set off as part of a UN-marked convoy of 10 up Al-Rashid Road in the early hours. It reached an IDF holding point at 4.15am. Stationary for over an hour, it was then hit at 5.35am. Fortunately, no one on board was killed. The UN says they were hit by Israeli naval gunfire, and in satellite imagery taken just two hours after the attack, CNN identified ships that could only be Israeli naval boats. They've been deployed along the coast and are attacking Gaza from the west.
8: We share with the Israeli army the coordinates of the the convoy and only when the Israeli army gives us the OK, the green light, uh, does ANRA move. And the purpose of this deconfliction process is to make sure that aid convoys don't get hit.
9: It's not the first time this has happened. Many other aid trucks have been hit since the beginning of this conflict. The UN says Northern Gaza is still home to reported 300,000 civilians. UNRWA says half of its mission requests to the north have been denied since January. And since this latest attack, they have taken the painful decision to stop trying to deliver aid to the north at all. The IDF says it's helping to coordinate humanitarian relief in Gaza, but aid agencies say they face repeated delays while some staff are detained and even tortured. A UN mission in December described one aid worker who said he was stripped, beaten and blindfolded. Even when convoys are allowed through, some routes are simply not passable. This large crater blocking Al Rashid Road just weeks before it was designated by the IDF as the main route permitted for humanitarian vehicles. Such large percentages of the population are at such dire need, at such immediate risk of starvation. From that perspective, it's really hard for me to understand what kind of um, potential military rationale could um, be advanced to justify actions like this. As the humanitarian crisis deepens, the question is whether Israel will be held accountable in a court of law for depriving so many in Gaza of aid. Katie Poglays, CNN. London.
2: And our thanks to CNN's KT Pole Glaze for that report. Here in the United States, the murder of hip hop pioneer Jam Master Jay, what prosecutors describe as a double life that he led, and the high profile trial that could provide answers finally into the ambush that led to his death. In our pop culture lead, Run DMC transformed hip hop. Their collaboration with Aerosmith and Walk This Way is heralded as a milestone of genre blending, becoming the first hip hop song to reach Billboard's top five in 1986. Jam master J was Run DMC's DJ and he spinned sounds that transfixed millions. He was murdered in 2002, but only now is his tragic case getting its day in court. As Omar Jimenez reports, the trial has revealed how Jam Master Jay lived a double life in order to keep providing money to his loved ones.
11: Closing arguments finishing today in the murder trial of two men accused of killing hip hop legend Jam Master Jay, a case more than two decades in the making, going unsolved since his shocking killing in 2002. Jam Master Jay was part of the collectively legendary group Run DMC. They were the definition of hip-hop, and Jam Master Jay, whose real name was Jason Mizell, was the center of it all. But Jay went from the height of Run DMC fame to being the victim of a brutal shooting death inside his recording studio in Queens, New York.
12: Please welcome Run DMC into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
11: <laughs> the group was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009 years after Jam Master Jay's untimely death. Finally, in August 2020, a break in the case when prosecutors unsealed their indictment. According to court documents, Jam Master Jay was at his recording studio on October 30, 2002, when the defendants, Ronald Washington and Carl Jordan Jr., entered. Prosecutors say Jordan fired two shots, one of which killed the hip-hop legend. Investigators say the shooting was the result of a drug dispute. According to court documents, Jam Master Jay had been involved in transporting kilogram quantities of cocaine between 1996 and 2002. Alongside his music career. Then, prosecutors say, in or about July 2002, Mizell acquired approximately 10 kilograms of cocaine. A dispute between Washington and one of the co-conspirators resulted in Mizell telling Washington that he would be cut out of the Maryland transaction. Following Washington's dispute with Mizell, Washington and Jordan conspired to murder Mizell. The killing of Jam Master Jay was a shock to the hip-hop community and beyond. Made harder by how long it took to make an arrest, For years, a witness who was also shot that night testified he was scared to cooperate with the investigation. According to the New York Times, he eventually identified Jordan as the alleged gunman and Washington as the alleged accomplice. Jordan also faces charges of cocaine distribution and conspiracy to distribute cocaine. Both men have pleaded not guilty. Now, in closing arguments today, both the attorneys for Jordan and Washington argued it was a third man named Jay Bryant who was actually the shooter. And Bryant was charged with two counts of murder tied to this case in May of last year. He's pleaded not guilty. His case was severed from these two. But prosecutors say he was seen entering the building before the shooting, that a piece of clothing with his DNA was found at the scene, and that he told the close associate he was the actual shooter. But prosecutors also say the evidence doesn't exactly support those claims. Overall, this decision will soon be up to a jury to decide this case that has now been over two decades coming, Jake.
2: All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much for that. Coming up, the startling headline today that puts a reported timeline on Russia possibly sending a nuclear weapon to outer space.
8: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In this hour, an immediate chilling effect in Alabama after a ruling by the state Supreme Court equating frozen embryos to children, the term, quote, wrath of God, used to justify the decision coming up. The IVF treatment now on hold in that state as clinics and patients in the state consider their legal liability. Plus... The shocking headline today in the New York Times that would grab the world's attention, that headline reads, quote, U.S. warns allies Russia could put a nuclear weapon into orbit this year. But we're going to start this hour with breaking news. Sources telling CNN that the White House is considering new executive action on the southern border. Let's get straight to CNN's Priscilla Alvarez, at the White House and Priscilla, this executive action would target asylum for migrants. Tell us more.
13: That's right, Jake. The idea here is to limit asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border for those who are crossing unlawfully, because Of course, as we have seen the numbers of border crossings go up, many of those who are crossing are seeking asylum in the United States. Now, what we know about the plan that is under consideration here invokes an authority that's already an immigration law to try to restrict who is eligible for asylum, again, if they cross unlawfully. This is something that does not affect people who are going to the legal ports of entry. Now, what this also notes is the president embracing tougher border measures. We saw some uh, something similar to this in that Senate border compromise. That included extraordinary powers given to the Homeland Security Secretary to essentially shut down the border if certain triggers were met. Well, it's unclear whether this would meet that threshold, it certainly shows the White House embracing what is a more restrictive measure on the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, sources tell me that no final decision has been made, but notable all the same. The White House telling me in a statement, quote, no executive action, no matter how aggressive can deliver the significant policy reforms and additional resources Congress can provide and that Republicans rejected. We continue to call on Speaker Johnson and House Republicans to pass the bipartisan deal to secure the border. Now, Jake, it's also worth noting that this authority that's being considered in this executive action is one that former President Donald Trump tried to use himself in his own proclamation back in 2018. Now, in that instance, he tried to shut down asylum entirely at the border. It's unclear whether this This would go to that length there are usually exceptions but all the same again the president uh, and the white house considering an executive action here that would be far tougher when it comes to asylum seekers at the u.s. mexico border
2: priscilla what is the current situation at the southern border of the united states have the record numbers of migrants have they those numbers slowed at all
13: They have dropped, though it's all relative. Homeland Security officials tell me they're seeing about 4,000 people crossing a day. That is a big drop from December when we were seeing 11,000 people a day. Now, the reason for that is because there have been ongoing talks between the U.S. and Mexico, essentially from Mexico to double down on their enforcement. And officials I've talked to cite those ongoing discussions as the reason behind this drop in numbers. But everyone here is quite cautious about what it means moving forward because oftentimes in January, there is a drop in numbers, and in the spring, it starts to go up again. So for now, the White House feeling confident about where the numbers are, though, of course, uh, it would be better if they were lower, but there is concern that come the spring, those numbers could go up again.
2: All right, Priscilla Alvarez at the White House. Thanks so much. CNN's Melanie Zanonas on Capitol Hill for us. Melanie, is this going to be a popular move amongst lawmakers.
1: Well, look, Republicans had been calling on the administration to use executive authority to secure the southern border. In fact, it was one of the reasons they cited when they decided to kill the Senate bipartisan deal to secure the border. They went from saying, we need legislation, to then suddenly saying that Biden already has the authority to act. But I'm sure there will be some praise, even if it's backhanded praise, over this move. I'm sure Republicans will say they were justified in killing that bipartisan deal because they say now Biden is acting and maybe it motivated him to act. But they're still likely gonna say that this is short of what their hardline demands are. And the reason why is because they like this issue of the border as a bargaining chip. They wanna hold on to it when it comes to debates over Ukraine aid. Even though they scuttled that bipartisan deal, top Republicans are still insisting, at least in the House, that they need to secure the border before they provide any additional aid to Ukraine. Speaker Mike Johnson has not said how you would handle a Senate-passed foreign aid package that did come over from the Senate. Uh, He's still taking a look at that they have not made a decision on how to proceed. He has requested a meeting, though, in recent weeks with the president on the border and Ukraine. Biden was asked about that recently. He said he'd be happy to meet with the speaker if he has something to say. But so far, that request has not been granted, Jake.
2: All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our world lead and new reporting from The New York Times, reporting that American intelligence agencies are warning their European allies, quote, if Russia is going to launch a nuclear weapon into orbit it will probably do so this year, but that it might instead launch a harmless dummy warhead into orbit to leave the West guessing about its capabilities, unquote. This builds on what CNN reported just last week when the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Congress Mike Turner of Ohio, sounded the alarm about a serious national security threat and quite frankly scared a lot of Americans when he posted, quote, I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat, unquote. We now know that Congressman Turner was alluding to plans that Russia is working to develop this nuclear space weapon with the capability to destroy commercial and government satellites orbiting the earth. President Biden, as you may recall, downplayed the risk.
3: There is no nuclear threat to the people of America or anywhere else in the world with what Russia is doing at the moment, number one. Number two, anything that they're doing and or they will do relates to satellites in space and damaging those satellites potentially. Number three, there is no evidence that they have made a decision to go forward with doing anything in space either.
2: Yesterday, Putin denied these plans that have been reported on by The New York Times, saying that Moscow is categorically against the deployment of any nuclear weapons in space. Joining us now is national security correspondent for The New York Times, David Sanger. Uh, David, you're the one that wrote this article. You note there's a sharp divide among American intelligence officials and agencies about whether Russia might launch a real or a, quote, dummy weapon. Why is there such a sharp divide in the intelligence community about Russia's intentions and capabilities here?
14: Well, Jake, I think there are two reasons that the divide exists. Um, The first is that there's every possibility that what Putin wants to do at this point is repeat what he did two years ago. We reported over the weekend that uh, during uh, the time period right around the invasion of Ukraine uh, two years ago, the Russians sent up a secret payload in a a military launch that appeared to be a a test run for putting a nuclear weapon in space, but they didn't actually put one in space. Um, Now, the new intelligence, the intelligence that led uh, Representative uh, Turner, Chairman Turner, to turn out that statement you showed, suggests they're planning another launch. And the division is, Are they going to again put what would essentially be a dummy warhead into space? Would they put a real one up there as a threat to the United States to essentially say, if you press us too hard for sanctions, if you press too hard in Ukraine, if you cut off our oil and gas shipments uh, along the way, we have a way of taking out your entire communication system? Of course, it would also take out theirs.
2: Yeah, on Friday, President Biden, of course, said that there's no evidence that Russia had decided to go ahead with this plan to put this weapon into space. Your reporting suggests that Russia could launch something as early as this year, 2024. But if Russia wants the West to guess about its capabilities, do you think its goal is to deter other countries that may also want the ability to take out an adversary's satellites or space weapons? What what do you think is the agenda here?
14: It's a really good question. So one possibility, Jake, is that in putting this weapon up, if they decide to go do it, the Russians are doing the equivalent of what they and the Chinese have done by putting malicious cyber code in our electric grid or in our communications grid. It's sitting there to be discovered as a threat. If you go to help out Taiwan too much, we could take out your systems. It's a little bit different than the old Cold War, mutually assured destruction that we all learned about you know, in school uh, so many decades ago. Uh, because in that case, if one country took out Los Angeles, the other one might take out Leningrad. Um, in this case, the Russians may well be concluding that no one is going to risk a nuclear war over an explosion in space that doesn't have human casualties.
2: Does the intelligence assessment by the US agree on how Russia, how Putin plans to use this space
14: weapon? The assumption is for intimidation, right? That nuclear weapons are primarily used for coercion. So a year and a half ago, Jake, we were talking uh, on your show about whether or not the Russians would use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. It came at a moment that they were losing a lot of territory. And the question was would they use the threat of that to keep the Ukrainians from pressing too hard? This is another version of using nuclear weapons for coercion. It's different from the way we think about it. The United States primarily uses its nuclear weapons now as the ultimate deterrent. If everything else failed and you had to save the state, the Russian doctrine is you can use it as you would use any other weapon for intimidation.
2: David Sanger, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, author of Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. Um, Neil, thanks so much for being here. So U.S. officials, uh, say that they're very worried about this Russian space weapon and how it could pose a significant threat to the United States and its allies by taking out satellite capability. What do you think?
15: Well, it's a reminder of why we have a Space Force. The Space Force is was conceived, among other with other tasks in mind, to protect our space-borne assets. And those assets are, of course, not only the value of the satellites themselves, it's the value of the information they gather from the spy satellites, but also the commerce that is generated, especially via the GPS satellites. So, So when you think of a force, a military force protecting the homeland, the homeland includes our space assets. The difference now, of course, is space is not bordered the way Earth's surface is. So satellites are continually have intersecting orbits of different nations with different roles and different purposes. So the idea that someone is going to, Putin, might put something into orbit that will explode, send out an electromagnetic pulse that fries the circuits of an entire swath of orbiting satellites makes no tactical sense. If everybody's got satellites moving through that area, it's not a very targeted weapon. Meanwhile, we already know how to take a weapon out of the we already know how to take a satellite out of orbit with a kinetic kill. Uh, India has done it. China's done it. Russia's done it. We've done it. We can target any satellite we want. It's been done. And and the idea that you put a weapon there and somehow drop it on the Earth, that's like the least strategic thing you could possibly do when you already have intercontinental ballistic missiles that can deliver a warhead anywhere between two points on Earth within 45 minutes.
2: Okay, I hear what you're saying, and that makes sense to me. But why do you think then Putin is going through with this weapon, which you argue would hit him as much as it would hit us?
15: Yeah, I I, it's it's I'm I remain puzzled by the idea that here's this thing that could explode. By the way, an actual bomb in space carries no shockwave because there's no air. To move that energy, it would have to be a radiative pulse to do the damage, and I, I cannot see the strategic value of that. Uh, it's yes, everyone is in a tizzy because the word nukes are being used, but it's the weapon itself. Maybe it's powered by a nuke, but the nuke itself is not what's getting dropped on cities. Just the way the president announced in in his comments. so no I don't I don't have an easy answer for what this is or how he intends to use it given that there's already the capability to deliver nuclear weapons surface to surface and the capability to target satellites with a kinetic kill from the earth. For, from Earth's surface you can send up a targeted uh, just a just a kinetic energy impactor that can completely destroy a satellite within eight minutes. Meanwhile, if you're in orbit, you got to wait until your orbit is in the right place, so it's near whatever other satellite you might want to destroy. So this it's a big mystery, and I, I so I have no idea beyond the physics of what's going on what how this could possibly be useful.
2: More broadly, to Russia. more broadly, when it comes to space warfare, who do you think has the technological edge?
15: Well, it's what it depends even by space warfare. Space has always been. A, a a place not where you drop bombs from but where you surveil and it's been that way since the early 1960s so the uh, united states takes this very seriously and if, if what, what who am i going to bet on <laughs> i'm betting on america the united states of course uh but uh i i don't know where he's going with this and wherever he might go I, it seems like an unnecessary path given other paths that already exist that people might wanna invoke to do damage.
2: All right, Neil deGrasse Tyson, great having you on the show. Thank you so much for your insights. Coming up, that controversial ruling from Alabama Supreme Court, which now classifies frozen embryos used in IVF, in vitro fertilization, as children. Today, IVF clinics in the state are taking drastic action that will immediately impact patients. In our health lead republican presidential candidate nikki haley is now weighing in on the controversial ruling from alabama's supreme court that found that frozen embryos are in their view people
1: i mean i think i mean embryos to me are babies i had artificial insemination yeah. that's how i had my son so when you look at you know one thing is to have To save sperm or to save eggs. But when you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that.
2: In his legal opinion, Chief Justice Tom Parker repeatedly invoked his religion, writing, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God, unquote. And now one Alabama hospital has paused its IVF care in the wake of the ruling. A spokesman for the University of Alabama Birmingham telling CNN, quote, we must evaluate the potential that our patients and our physicians could be prosecuted criminally or face punitive damages for following the standard of care for IVF treatments, unquote. Let's bring in Sean Tipton. He's chief advocacy and policy officer for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Sean, your organization is criticizing this ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court. You say it's medically and scientifically unfounded Uh, In a statement, the president uh, of ASRM wrote, quote, modern fertility care will be unavailable to the people of Alabama, needlessly blocking them from building the families they want. Young physicians will choose not to come to the state for training or to begin their practice. Existing clinics will be forced to choose between providing suboptimal patient care or shutting their doors, unquote. Now, you anticipated this might be a consequence. Do you think other medical providers in Alabama are going to stop IVF treatments altogether?
6: Well, there's a lot we don't know about this, about the impact of this decision. What we do know is it is already leading to fewer babies and fewer grandbabies that are desperately wanted for their parents and grandparents in Alabama. So I think this is the first, UAB is the first system to stop. I don't think it's going to be the last.
2: The ruling has created a lot of confusion for doctors and IVF patients in the state. What are you hearing from them?
6: Uh, the ones in the state are particularly terrified. Our members all over the country are quite nervous, wondering if they could be next. I, I think that, unfortunately, the uh, justices of the Supreme Court of Alabama, and it sounds like uh, Nikki Haley, uh, can't seem to grasp the reality that would be apparent for anybody else. That is, a fertilized egg in a freezer and in an infertility clinic is not the same as a born child. And I think that legal reality needs to adjust to empirical, natural, scientific reality.
5: You, you
2: heard Nikki Haley there say she agrees with Alabama's court. Are you concerned that this ruling is going to set legal precedent not only in Alabama uh, but across the country um, where, with other courts saying embryos are the legal equivalent uh, of a baby?
6: I think that's possible. I also think it is possible that ambitious anti-choice politicians will seek to do this through legislation as well as through the courts. I mean. I don't think you could pass a bill in any state right now that said let's outlaw ivf but i think what they don't understand is if you seek to say that a fertilized egg in a freezer is the same as a born child you can sign patients to getting suboptimal care
2: sean tipton thank you so much appreciate your time today republicans once touted a former fbi informant as a trusted source that's their term in their impeachment inquiry into president biden They sound a little different today after this revelation from the Justice Department and the FBI where that source was indicted for lying. We're going to talk about that next. In our Law and Justice lead with President Biden's brother James Hall before the House Oversight Committee earlier today, Republicans are going ahead with their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, despite the revelation yesterday that the Former FBI informant at the center of those efforts told the FBI that he got the false dirt from Russian intelligence officials and he's been indicted for lying to the FBI. Several lawmakers today are blaming the FBI.
3: You know, I think it's interesting that the FBI didn't investigate the allegations made years ago and now they've indicted the confidential source that they trusted for years and made uh, – paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars, so, you know, it's – There's a lot of questions I have regarding that.
2: Democrats, for their part, are calling on Republicans to end their impeachment inquiry into President Biden.
3: I think it's time for uh, Chairman Comer and the Republicans to fold up the circus tent and we should get back to work for the American people. This impeachment investigation is nothing but a wild goose chase that is based on Russian disinformation and propaganda.
2: Republican congressman, former congressman Fred Upton from the great state of Michigan joins us now. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, uh, Congressman. It it does not appear that Republicans are going to drop this impeachment inquiry into President Biden anytime soon, even though it's now clear that the allegations from this FBI informant, Mr. Smirnoff, were false. Why are they continuing to push this inquiry when there is no evidence President Biden did anything wrong? And this one witness who had this you know, bombshell of an allegation it has now been criminally indicted for lying.
12: Well, I think the base is demanding it, but at the end of the day, the votes are not, if this is how it ends up, the votes aren't there to move this thing forward, let alone send it to the Senate uh, for a trial there. So I think it it dies on the vine. I mean, the, the evidence that came out yesterday, and uh, in, in some of this was with Smirnoff, the FBI didn't discover until late last fall. So, I mean, it's... Relatively new evidence that led—we all know the wheels of justice turn slowly. It took that that long and to get the indictment, and you know, th- hopefully he doesn't escape the country.
2: Do you think Republicans are, are are doing this just because it's an election year? Yeah, I think they got ahead
12: of their skis. Uh, I really do. They they didn't they didn't have the evidence. It was a reluctant uh, group of co- uh, Congress uh, to, to move forward, uh, and now I think almost a nail in the coffin. And you know, let, let's think about it. You know how many public laws have been enacted in this Congress?
2: 34?
12: Nine, 30, oh, nine? I just looked it up on 39? Google. Two of them are for Smithsonian
2: uh, Associates. Yeah, there's like uh, to post named, offices. Post and office, like, statements,
12: a yeah. whole bunch of stuff.
2: No, it's the so least so productive Congress ever. since the Great Depression, yeah, I think. Ever. Yeah, ever, it's
12: like ever. So you got the CR, you got the FISA reauthorization, you have the Farm Bill, which technically expired last September. Uh, you've got obviously Ukraine. Uh, Allah, I mean, the president was asking for money uh, last October. It is you know they got to get the job done.
2: Speaking of uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, Alexei Navalny uh, died in custody. This Russian anti-corruption fighter and political prisoner who, who died under suspicious circumstances. Uh, Donald Trump last night compared himself to Alexei Navalny, suggesting that his own indictments for for you know criminal allegations are somehow com- comparable Ridiculous. to what Alexei Navalny yeah. did. He was poisoned, probably, by the Kremlin, etc. Um, take a listen.
12: It's happening in our country, too. Uh, we are turning into a communist country in many ways. And if you look at it, I'm the leading candidate. I got indicted. I never heard of being indicted before. I was. Gonna, I got indicted four times. I have eight or nine trials. That's it a is a of f- form of Navalny. It is a form of... Uh, communism or fascism. Your thoughts? You know, it's ridiculous. Uh, and again, yesterday, uh, the Supreme Court uh, denied uh, an appeal on hearing the Michigan case in terms of vote fraud and the fines of $150,000 is still going to be on the, the Trump lawyers that are there. I mean, this it's just to think that he continues to be a victim. And, and this is the first time that he's mentioned Navalny, right?
2: Yeah, and he has not condemned Putin at all, unlike Nikki Haley or Joe Biden Uh, or many Western leaders. Well, as
12: John Bolton said, you know, if Trump wins, there's going to be a pretty big celebration in Moscow.
2: Well, speaking of of Trump winning, uh, you represented Michigan. Uh, I know there are a lot of Democrats that are very worried about Biden's chances in Michigan. What what do you think?
12: Yeah, they should be worried. Uh, You know, Trump won Michigan narrowly, 12,000 votes or so back in 2016. He lost it by 154,000 in 20. Uh, the polls show that Trump is up by eight, eight to 10 points. So between the UAW rank and file, they're really not happy with the leadership. Uh, the Palestinian issue. Uh, African Americans may may sit at home. Uh, you know, Trump Trump is doing pretty well right now in Michigan, and they they need to be Democrats need to be worried. And I know. Debbie Dingle, my good friend and colleague who's often on your show, mm. and she's been sounding the alarm bells uh, for a number of months saying, you better get with it if you're gonna win in Michigan because it's not gonna be so simple.
2: She sure has. Um, and, and you mentioned the Palestinian conflict, the Israel versus Hamas is a big uh, Palestinian and Muslim and Arab American population uh, in Michigan. And a lot of them are, are saying, at least according to reports I've read, they're just, they're not gonna vote.
12: Well, and, and you've got my former colleague Talib saying, don't vote, just vote president. Even Andy Levin was saying that, former Democratic congressman too, uh, this week saying, you know, just register a vote, but don't vote for, for anyone. Just vote, in essence, vote present.
2: That would essentially, of course, help Donald Trump. That's right. Who was in favor of what he well, called that's in the, the primary. Uh,
12: Remember we got a primary next week.
2: Right, right. And, oh, in and the Michigan primary. Yeah. But are Tlaib and Levin saying that about the general election well, too? I
12: don't know that they actually talked about the general, but I think for next Tuesday, and that's Michigan primary, they're telling people to either stay at home or don't vote. All right. Fascinating
2: stuff. Uh, Michigan Republican, uh, Fred Upton, former Congressman. Fred Upton, former Congressman. Thanks so much. Always good to see you, sir. Yeah. Coming up next, the latest effort by the United States to try to jumpstart hostage negotiations between Israel and Hamas. Plus, I'm going to speak with the father of one of the hostages who says it's really up to two people for a deal to get done. Stay with us. In our world, lead sources tell CNN that CIA Director Bill Burns is expected to travel to Paris on Friday for further talks with... Israeli, Qatari, and Egyptian officials over the ongoing hostage negotiations. This is families of the estimated 100 living hostages still being held by terrorists in Gaza are pleading with officials to try to secure a deal. Six American Israeli hostages are believed to be among those in captivity for the past four and a half months, including 35-year-old Sagi Dekelhan. Sagi's father, Jonathan Dekelchen, joins us now. Jonathan, thanks for coming back on the lead. I wish you weren't, you didn't have to come back because I wish Sagi had been freed. Um, You and other family members of American Israeli hostages have expressed your frustration with the pace of negotiations um, after meeting virtually with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan last week. Um, Do you think that the U.S. government, do you think that the Israeli government are doing enough to get a deal to get uh, Sagi home? Well, um, look, at the end of the day, there are two people that have to agree
16: in order for all of the hostages to come home um, alive and not in boxes. One is Yecheh Sinwar, uh, wherever he is. And head of other, Hamas. Head of Hamas. And the other is Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, our prime minister in Israel. Uh, the Biden administration has, has done and, and we believe is doing as much as it can to facilitate the the freeing of these hostages. More needs to be done clearly. Um, it's been well over two months since the last hostage was released. The facts on the ground tell us that more needs to be done um, and the sides need, need to work harder, whether it's the Israelis, the Americans, the Qataris, because time, time is not on the side of the hostages. And we have serious concerns how many of the 133 that we presume are alive, we hope are alive, are actually still with us. When's the last time you had any proof of life for Sigi? Well, I'm from kibbutz near Oz, which was destroyed on October 7th. On that day, 80 of our people, of kibbutz members from aged 1 to aged 85, and a number of Thai workers were taken to Gaza. In late November, early December, a wave of releases came, and, and about 40 women and children from our kibbutz were released. Of those, some of the women and some of the teenagers uh, were able to tell us that they had encountered Sagi alive in the tunnels underneath Khan Yunus. But since that time, we have heard nothing. And in fact, only those people whose relatives, who, whose loved ones appeared in Hamas hostage videos have seen any sign of life. And we don't even know, for the most part, when the, those were dated.
2: Benny Gantz said today um, that the Palestinian people could enjoy Ramadan, uh, and the, essentially implying that the war would be over if Hamas would just surrender and turn over the hostages. And, and I'm wondering what you think when you hear that. That's, that's a, you rarely hear that being acknowledged in the streets uh, when people are protesting the war and calling for a ceasefire. But, but what's your take when you hear Benny Gantz say that? Well, I mean,
16: it, he's stating the obvious. Uh, the problem here is that both sides need to, need to agree to that. Um from my perspective, there's absolutely no doubt that Hamas needs to be eradicated as a military and a governing organization, not just for the sake of Israel and Israelis, but for the sake of the people of Gaza. Uh, Hamas has held Gaza hostage since its coup in 2007. Uh, it's over a million people who are held captive, in essence, by a terrorist organization that was never supposed to be the one and only ruling authority in Gaza. Mm-hmm. As for what the, what the end game can be, the expectation that Hamas will simply lay down its weapons and turn over the hostages, uh, while hopeful and admirable, is not practical. Uh, we know that if that could happen, the hostages would come home alive. As we've seen, that's not likely. And so Israel and its partners have to be a lot more creative in moving forward on any plan and in any action that is going to get these
2: hostages home. President Biden is um, vocally growing uh, frustrated with Benjamin Netanyahu and the way that the prime minister and the IDF are, are waging this war in Gaza. Um, are you worried at all that that tension will get in the way of negotiations to get sigi and other hostages home? Well, sometimes friends have to argue. And sometimes friends
16: have to push each other. And I think the hostage families, nearly all of them, would welcome the United States, pushing Israel, pushing a very reluctant Israeli government uh, towards negotiation. Because this idea that Israeli forces will go knocking on, on Sinwar's door in some bunker underground, and he will then release all of the hostages, that's fantasy. And the only way these people are coming out are through negotiations. The Israeli ministers themselves and in in the Israeli cabinet have made it clear that they believe that the hostages are not a priority. Uh, That means that for the sake of the six American and the other 120-something Israeli hostages, we need our partners abroad to make it clear to the Israeli government that for the good of the hostages, for the good of the... Israeli people as a whole. And I believe for the, the, the right-minded world, these hostages have to come home alive.
2: Yeah. In a recent article um, you wrote for the Atlantic Council, you wrote, quote, by invoking the Holocaust when talking about October 7, 2023, the Israeli government is released from its accountability for the massacre that day and its sacred responsibility to return all the hostages alive. Uh, explain what you mean by that.
16: Well, I look at this from a number of perspectives. I'm a, my day job until October 7th was as a professional historian, but I'm also the child of Holocaust survivors, so very sensitive to invoking ever the Holocaust in in, in any scenario. In this particular one, um, around the events of October 7th, there really is no parallel. Um, we. Israel, since 1948, has been a sovereign country. Generations of Jews and, and friends of Jews work in order to create a sovereign country with a strong army that was meant to protect its citizens, if nothing else, its civilians. And that basic social contract, not just within Israel, but for the Jewish diaspora, was broken on October 7th. Uh, fail, the Israeli government and our army failed on October 7th. But that failure is the failure of a sovereign state with its own powerful army. There's no resemblance mm. to what happened to the Jews of Europe, to a degree, uh, North Africa during the Second World War, despite the fact
2: that the carnage was horrific on October 7th. It's been four and a half months that you uh, and, and Siggy's wife and Siggy's three daughters have got to go on and get up every morning and deal with this absolute nightmare. There's a picture of Segui. How are you able to do it? How are the daughters? How is his wife? It's just, it just seems so awful.
16: Well, Avital, Sigi's wife, and she's the hero here. And keeping her home together, keeping her three little girls, and moving straight on. It's a nightmare every day, that, that's the truth. Um, his s- almost seven year old and almost three year old girls are completely aware that he's not, he's not with us, he's somewhere else. They have many questions, we can't answer any of them. Yeah. Where is he, is he okay? When can we go home to our kibbutz? None of these, none of these questions have answers and it rips our heart out every day uh, as it does I'm sure uh, the other 132 hostage families. And you
2: were saying earlier um, before we did the interview that kibbutz Neroz, uh you're not, you're probably never going back. It's, it's, it's gone. It's just gone forever.
16: Well, what was a kind of paradise in the desert? You know, our, our first prime minister um, had a, had a dream that the Israeli desert, the Negev desert would bloom. And kibbutz Oz was one of the living examples of what that looked like in terms of it's, it's just physical beauty, and hyper-productive, hyper-productivity in agriculture. And that's all gone. What remains of Kibbutz Nero is the home of about 440 people, is a burnt-out shell that was looted completely on October 7th by civilians from Gaza, everything from my grandkids' tricycle to the largest of our farm tractors. And there may come a time when the Israeli government rebuilds, you know, plows under the shell that remains and rebuilds. Uh, I do not know if any of the original residents uh, are going to want to return. I am sure that they will only return if our sons, our daughters, our fathers, our grandfathers, our husbands come home alive, the same people who were taken from these border kibbutzim.
2: Jonathan Dekelchan, father of American-Israeli hostage. Sagi Dekelchan, thank you so much. And hopefully, you'll come back with Sagi. with with the three girls and we'll, we'll all celebrate together and let's hope for peace and the return of the hostages very soon. Thank you. We'll be right back. Just into the lead, the Biden family's German shepherd commander has been involved in at least 24 biting incidents involving the U.S. Secret Service. According to Newly obtained documents obtained by CNN. CNN senior White House producer Betsy Klein joins us now in her lead debut. And Betsy, some incidents with Commander had been previously reported, but these records paint a picture of a of a much larger issue, really.
17: That's right, Jake. You'll remember CNN reported in the fall that the president's German Shepherd commander was involved in dozens of biting incidents that was White House personnel, members of Secret Service, resident staff, and others. And it became such a problem that the first family eventually had to send the dog to live with other family members. And after that, my colleague Camila Deschalas sent a Freedom of Information request to the Secret Service to really better understand what was going on here. And today we got back hundreds of documents detailing the nature of the bites over a full year. And there were at least 24 specific incidents with the Secret Service, and I want to read you this email from an unnamed assistant special agent in charge to his team on the Presidential Protective Division. Now, these are the agents that most closely protect the president and his family. He says, the recent dog bites have challenged us to adjust our operational tactics when Commander is present. Please give lots of room. He added that agents must be creative to ensure our own personal safety.
2: So Betsy, did the White House send Commander to live with family immediately after this?
17: Well, no, Jake. I mean, Commander actually remained at the White House for more than three months after this email was sent, and there were multiple incidents in that time. And exactly one month after that email, an agent working at the Biden's Rehoboth Beach, Delaware home was bit in the backyard as he walked to his post. And a report we got from that incident said that it caused a severe, deep, open wound that the agent started to lose a significant amount of blood. That agent was treated by the White House medical unit, got six stitches. And we learned that more than 10 of these total incidents required medical treatment. Now, the first family really considers this dog to be part of the family. Source close to the Bidens telling CNN that the family is heartbroken and feels awful about the situation.
2: Yeah, I've been in a similar situation. It's rough. It's I don't mean that. As, no, no, I didn't mean that as a stupid pun. Like it's it's difficult. But absolutely. The dog has to go. Uh, on, we, thankfully, we were able to find a home for ours. Betsy Klein, appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow, maybe something that has not happened in more than 50 years. breaking news Donald Trump is acting for asking for at least an extra month to pay that massive court judgment the, pres, the president's attorneys former president's attorneys are asking for the judge in Trump's civil fraud trial to delay enforcing the 355 million dollar penalty for at least 30 days they're accusing the New York state attorney general of a quote unseemly rush to enforce that judgment Trump has 30 days from when the judgment was entered to post bond and appeal finally for us today in our out of this world lead it's one big milestone accomplished and an even bigger one to go for the latest moon lander launched last week aboard a SpaceX rocket the uncrewed spacecraft successfully fired its engine and went into orbit around the moon today it's named o- odysseus or od for short it was sent up by a houston-based company called intuitive machines which posted this picture of Odie in orbit a short time ago. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to bring you live coverage as Odie will attempt the first soft landing on the moon by a U.S. spacecraft since the Apollo missions of the late 1960s and early 70s. Happy landings to Odie, and good luck. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a
0: place I like to call The Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.